Well, when I was in seminary, we, we took a class on evangelism, um, of course, uh, how to evangelize. It was actually, of all our classes, it was the one with the most reading, believe it or not. Thousands of pages of reading, um, Ventilian presuppositional apologetics uh, was something that we had to master and read a bunch of books about that and all these different approaches to evangelism and, and apologetics and answering the different cults with their different questions and all that and you know a lot of it was just book learning you know you got the, you're reading a lot you're writing a lot but there was this one assignment that was absolutely terrifying for me and I found that the hardest part of the whole class not the exam not the papers not the reading but we actually had to go onto a university campus and evangelize people cold turkey and cold turkey evangelism is when you share the gospel with somebody that you've never met before so there's no you have nothing in common, you have nothing, uh, no relationship, you just walk up to a complete stranger and share the gospel. And so we had a few assignments, you know, door-to-door type things and street preaching and all that kind of stuff. But for me, the most terrifying one was to wander around this campus and find strangers and, and share the gospel. So the way they did it is they sent us out two by two, and um, I showed up there with my little pocket Bible because, you know, I didn't want to scare people off. And the guy I was partnered with, his name was Ray, he had this giant Bible under his arm. And he was like, no, I want people to know what we're here for. I was like, oh boy, we look like two Jehovah's Witnesses. But, um, and he was an absolute natural. And I think maybe that's why the professor put the two of us together. Uh, he was a bit older than me. He had done this a lot. He was absolute natural. We'd be walking around the campus and he would just, you would see a, a bunch of guys standing there, um, you know, with all their tattoos, you know, neck tattoos and piercings and stuff, standing around in wife beaters. And one of the guys had a, um, had a, car magazine so he says oh you're into cars yeah man I'm into cars and so he starts asking him about his car and and what it can do and and the guy's all proud of his car and the other guys are standing around there and they're all talking about cars and then he says so when you went to buy this car you didn't just walk in and buy it because you liked the way it looked right you did research about it and he's like yeah I knew everything about this car man I researched I knew everything about it and so and then he just turns the conversation he said so do, have you spent more time or less time researching what happens to your soul when you die? And I was like, what? <laughs> Where did that come from? I felt so awkward. I was cringing. I was like, what? This big guy with his Bible there, you know? And nobody else seemed to feel awkward about it at all. It seemed to be a very natural next question. You know, what horsepower and where do you go when you die? Um, <laughs> And so they were like, no, man, I, I, I haven't thought much about that. And so he says, well, what do you think about that? What do you think about um, where your soul goes when you die? No, I haven't, I'm, I'm not sure. And, you know, so he says, well, if you're, do you think that that's something you should look into? He's like, yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I definitely need to spend some time thinking about that. So he says, let me show you how, to, how you can go about doing that. You should read parts of this book. And he pulls out his Bible. And he flips to, you know, Ephesians 2 and talks about how you're dead in your trespasses and sins and your children of wrath and all this kind of stuff. And don't worry, it sounds like bad news, but it's actually good news. And he starts telling them about Jesus and shared the gospel with all these guys. And they were all completely open. They were riveted. No one was interrupting. Everyone was just standing watching. He left him some verses, left his number, and we walked away. And I was like, man, that was so cool. And then he said, okay, now it's your turn. So I said, no, 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 no. I will... Uh, I'll do, I need to learn. And he's like, no, you need to do. So he said, okay, go get him. And I mean, 
he just stepped back and said, you go find someone. So I'm walking around, and I remember there was this guy, there was sort of an outdoor pavilion. This is just at a public university. Um, there's this outdoor pavilion, and there was this guy sitting there with his backpack, obviously waiting f to meet someone after class or something. And I kind of caught his eye, and he caught mine. He looked down, he looked up. I was still looking at him. You know, just kind of like when you see a girl in a coffee shop that you want to talk to. And I don't know what he thought, but I was like, okay. And I started walking up to him and sat down, and I... I don't know anything about cars. <laughs> he didn't have a car magazine, so I just said to him, hey, I'm here because I've got this class and I need to ask somebody some questions. Will you help me out? And he was like, yeah, sure. So I asked him questions. Um, you know, what do you think happens when you die and where your soul goes? And I just started asking him those types of questions. So I kind of cheated because I used the class. Um, but he was very open, and we were talking about it, and I got to share the gospel with him, and I got to, he, you know, when I was done asking the questions, a little survey that I went through, he said, hey, this class that you're taking, do they tell you what happens when you die? And I was like, yeah, they do. And he was like, well, what is it? So I was like, well, let me show you. And I pull out my little microscopic Bible, <laughs> my little New Testament there, and, and I, I did exactly what I'd just seen Ray do. And it, it was so fun. I mean, the guy didn't, like, break down in tears and become a Christian, but he was really interested, and he was really open, and he was listening to me read the Word, and I got to share the gospel with him and leave him with some um, contact information if he wanted to get hold of the church. And I walked out thinking, that was, that was phenomenal. I mean, that was just such a, an amazing feeling. And um, I thought, I'm going to do this way more. Just not today. I need to go. <laughs> I was like drained. But I wonder if you've ever had that experience where you feel like, I know this is something I should do, but it's just not me. It's just not me, and, and it would be outside of my comfort zone. And what I want to challenge you is that, yeah, it may be outside your comfort zone, but that's okay. There's nothing more rewarding than being given an opportunity by the Lord to share the gospel and you being faithful to do that, whatever the outcome is. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight if you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. You remember as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, passage by passage, um, Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem now. This is his last mission to Jerusalem until he gets onto the cross to die for our sins. And we've seen over the past couple of weeks, Jesus is not seeker sensitive. He's more what we would call commitment cautious. He wants people to know that they do need to follow him, but that they need to be cautious and they need to commit. And so last week we looked at the three hurdles to discipleship that you need to get over if you're going to follow Jesus. Uh, the hurdle of personal comfort, um, the hurdle of priority confusion, and the hurdle of postponed commitment. Remember that? He said, um, somebody was like, I'll follow you anywhere. And he said, well, just remember, we don't have hotel rooms around here. Boxes have holes, so personal comfort is something because the Son of Man has none of that. And then priority confusion, he would call somebody and they're like, oh, sure, I'll come, but first let me go and bury my father um, or postpone commitment. Uh, yes, of course, I, I want to come, but first let me do this. Everything was about later on, and so Jesus clarified those for us last week. So now, after this, he gives his disciples a practical assignment for evangelism. Let's read uh, Luke 10, verse 1. And uh, we're only going to get to the, four, the first four verses tonight, but this is the, the section. Uh, after, the Lord, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, 
to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what's set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And he goes on. As I said, we're going to get to the first four verses, and we're going to see um, four evangelism responsibilities that all of us need to have, all believers need to have, for us to be on mission with Jesus. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And when he left, he left the Great Commission. I want you now to go into all nations, um, discipling people, baptizing them, and discipling them, teaching them what I've taught you. And so we are the result of that command, and also we need to be part of continuing that command to baptize people and to make them disciples and to teach them. So we're going to look at these four evangelism responsibilities. One, play your part. Two, pray for preachers. You might say pray for more preachers. Um, Three, persevere in persecution. And four, purge all pride. So let's look at our first responsibility. Play your part. In verse 1, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now before we move on, if you have a New American Standard Bible or a New King James Version Bible or an Old King James Version Bible, you are going to see that it says the Lord appointed 70 others. Who has that? You know, 70 others, okay. And then if you have the ESV or the NIV or maybe another version that says 72, I read 72, who has that? Okay, so it's about an even split. Um, now, I could spend about 20 minutes explaining the textual variance, whether it's 70 or 72. But you know what it's like when you meet an elderly couple And you ask, how did you two meet? And they start telling you this really cute romantic story about how they met. But then they get stuck on the name of the restaurant. And we were at the Denny's. It wasn't the Denny's. It was the the IHOP. No, 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 no. I remember it was the Denny's. It was the Denny's on 4th Street. No, it was the IHOP on 5th Street. I'm sure it was the Denny's. And they go on and on for 20 minutes until they clear up which one it is. And the whole time you're thinking, how's this relevant to the story? Has that ever happened to anyone else here? Okay. So I could spend 20 minutes talking about whether it's 70 or 72, and you would be sitting there thinking, what's this got to do with the story? And the answer is absolutely nothing. Okay, so we're just going to move on from that detail. I'm going to read 72 because I'm reading the ESV. There were more than 69 people. Um, And they were sent out two by two. A lot of commentators just derail here and go on for pages and pages. We're not going to do that. The point here is that the Lord appointed these people and sent them ahead of him two by two. And and notice where they're going, into every town and place where he himself is about to go. 
So this to me is fascinating. It's like a double tap evangelism strategy. Jesus is going to these towns to evangelize, to do miracles, to do healings, to announce that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And before he does that, he sends them ahead saying, go to the town and do the same thing I'm about to do. And it's interesting to me because you would think, if we understand the doctrine of election, that God already knows the future, he's already planned the future, so he knows who are his, and he knows who's going to believe in him, you would think then that the first time an elect person hears the gospel, they believe. And so you would never need to hear the gospel twice from two different people. But we just don't see that in our experience, do we? And we don't see it in scripture either. It is, it's very common that a person needs to hear the gospel multiple times from multiple sources before they fully understand it or fully believe it. Even here in this case when Jesus is the one who's evangelizing. So he sends these people ahead of him. It's not like they're going to go and convert all these towns and Jesus is going to get there and say, oh, well, now I've got nothing to do. No, very likely he's going to go and he's just going to repeat the same message that these people all just said. So he's sending them out for their benefit, firstly, to teach them to do this, just like we were sent out from our class in evangelism class, go two by two, go to the campus and put into practice all the stuff that you're learning in the class. And so he's teaching them to do that. But also he's preparing the towns. He's doing it for the benefit of the towns. So that people hear the gospel and they might say, well, I'm, I'm not quite ready yet. And then they think about it and they think about it. Then they hear the gospel again. Maybe they see a miracle. I don't know what to do with that. Then a few weeks later, someone comes and does another miracle. Okay, well, now I've been thinking about it. I can't get that miracle off my mind. Now someone new comes and he's doing it again. Let me speak to him. So Jesus is using this strategy of, of planting seeds and watering and following up. Some nails need to be whacked a few times before they go in the wood. Maybe, maybe the wood's hard. Maybe you were one of those people. Maybe you had to hear the gospel growing up from when you were a child and when you were a teenager and when you were in college. And maybe you heard the gospel many times. Maybe you've been married to a believer for many, many years, hearing the gospel over and over and over and over until one day suddenly you believe. That's just how the Lord works. So you need to play your part that's your responsibility in evangelism. You don't have to be the person who closes the deal. You just need to be part of the process and leave the rest up to the Lord. And don't be discouraged when you present the gospel to somebody and then they, they don't like immediately burst into tears and fall on their knees and like, I'm cut to the quick. What do I need to do to repent? Like, that almost never happens. That's okay. If the person says, uh-huh, okay, that's nice, yeah, let me take your business card, okay, bye, and you never see them again, that's totally okay. That's why we use this phrase, planting seeds. It actually, it actually comes from the Bible. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Because you, you, you know what this is like. You've heard in baptism testimonies in this church, people say, people in their 20s or 30s say, I grew up in this church. I heard the gospel from a young age. I heard the gospel from my parents. I heard the gospel from my Sunday school teacher. I heard the gospel from a faithful youth pastor. Then I, whatever, went off to college, went off the rails, and then I heard this sermon on the radio, this youth event at college, this visiting speech, something, and the scales fell off my eyes, and I turned, and I repented, and I'm here. And, and your parents are like, 
why didn't you get saved when you were four the first time? You know? When I shared the gospel with you, when you would have saved yourself all of that pain. Or the Sunday school teacher saying, I taught you the gospel so many years, and then you had to leave home before you repented. Why is it? It's just, it's just the way the Lord works. And so 1 Corinthians 3 verse 6 Paul even is telling this to the Corinthians because they were like, I'm a Paul, I'm of Apollos, you know, um, uh, like, the, like they're celebrities, you know, like uh, I've, I've got the Michael Jordan jersey, well, I've got the Apollos, the preacher jersey, you know, it's like, no, 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 he says, you're missing the whole point. Yes, I did some work among you, he did some work among you, but we were, it was a, we were a team, it was a relay race. And so he says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, Apollos watered. But God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. But only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. In other words, we're one team. And each one will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So Paul's getting excited here because the Corinthians, yes, they've been saved and they've been knit into this church. But who's he giving all the glory to? giving it to God because ultimately nobody gets saved unless God grants them faith nobody gets saved unless God grants them repentance nobody gets saved unless God is involved he's it's his spirit that has to convict you of the sin not the person's gospel presentation that makes you feel guilty it's the conviction of sin from the Holy Spirit that's required the regeneration of the heart a new mind to understand. Uh, like the prediction, the, the prophecy in Ezekiel, what's it, Ezekiel 36, that I will, I will take out your heart of stone, I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Who, who's, that's all God doing that, not the evangelist. And so Paul says, yeah, I planted. So maybe you're a Sunday school teacher, and week after week, you got your little flannel board out there. I don't even know if our Sunday school teachers use that or not. But, you know, you got your whiteboard, you got your little craft, you got your whatever, and you're doing your best, and you're acting it out, and you're trying to, you're trying to make them do crafts to help them remember, remember, and at the end, what? Maybe nothing. And they turn 16, nothing. And they turn 18, nothing. They go off to college, nothing. They get married, nothing. They become an atheist for 12 years, Nothing. And then something happens. There's a car accident. They lose their business. They get sick. Something happens. Somebody comes to them in the hospital, shares the gospel. They believe. It's not like that's the first time they heard the gospel. You planted those seeds. So the things that the Spirit has that work to convict them over those years, to shape their thinking. And you'll hear this in testimonies when people get saved. They'll say, I felt guilty about it the whole time I was doing it. I knew what I was doing was wrong all along. But how did you know? Sometimes people don't even know how they know. You know how they know? Because their Sunday school teacher taught them. Or they heard it in a sermon. So you were just planting those seeds. And then someone else comes along and waters, and someone else comes and plucks the fruit. Our Sunday school curriculum is designed in this church to make sure that the children are exposed to the, the full counsel of God. If they're among us for years, they're going to hear the whole Bible. And um, it's so wonderful to hear reports from even my kids as they're getting older in Bible class. You know, questions will come from obscure, you know, trivia questions, and they know the answer. And I'm like, I didn't teach them that. And so I'll ask, where did you learn that? And they say, I learned that in Sunday school. And I'm like, yes, good Sunday school. Good Awana. 
And I just want to give the parents some encouragement and maybe the young adults here as well, maybe just some advice. It can be very discouraging to a parent after, you know, they've read all those books on how to raise godly kids and they've been faithful and they, they cried their tears after they disciplined you when you were little and they've gone to their parenting classes and they've read the parenting books and they've done everything and they've actually done everything pretty good. No one's perfect, but they've, they've really been faithful to the Lord and they've taken you to church and they've tried to show you that example and, and the whole time. And then you go off to your friend's random charismatic churches you think where the, the whole time is just a waste of time except for the one night where they preach the gospel and you come back and you say, Mom, Dad, I heard the gospel for the first time and I'm saved. You know how discouraging that is for your pastor? <laughs> Who's been preparing sermons for hours every week of your life? Oh, this youth pastor, he was fantastic. Well, it's good, but let's all keep that in perspective. God gets all the glory for that. And it's not because one person preached one great sermon. It's because there's been this work, this relay team working on your heart. So don't be discouraged if you share the gospel with a co-worker and they don't repent. Maybe years from now, someone else will share the gospel and get to pluck that fruit. Or maybe you get to share the gospel with someone they do repent. Well, don't take all the credit for that. Man, I must be the next Ray Comfort, you know, um, Billy Graham or whatever. It's like, no, you were in the right place at the right time and God gets the glory. So that's the first step. Play your part. The, the next responsibility is pray for preachers. I mean, let's pray to God that there be more preachers. This is what Jesus says in verse 2. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, this is a, an obvious metaphor that there's this, this field out there that's ripe for the picking. So why aren't more fruit being picked? Well, because there aren't enough laborers. And so what's, what's the application? Jesus has it there. So pray to the Lord of the harvest. That's Jesus himself. That's God the Father. That's the Holy Spirit. Pray to the, the Lord of the harvest that he may send out more workers. He's the one that has to send them. He's the one that has to stir them up. He's the one that has to, to raise up laborers who are wanting to go and do this. So we do our team sport part. We all play our part, sharing the gospel, being a good witness, um, trying to teach our kids what we can, trying to help where we can and just be salt and light in society. But you also need people whose full-time calling it is, is to present the word of God. You need missionaries. We can't all go into all nations, but we can all get together and send some people into those nations and keep doing that. And we're part of that as well. We're playing our part by financing that. We're playing our part by visiting them or praying for them and encouraging them, helping them. But we actually need somebody to be a them. You know, it's like what, what William Carey said when he, when he went to Burma. He was like, I'll go into the pit if you will hold the rope. You see, you need both. You can't have a guy in a pit without anyone holding the rope. You also can't have a whole bunch of people holding a rope and there's no one willing to go in the pit. You need both. And so the harvest is plentiful, but there's not a lot of people who will go out into these fields and learn the language of those people and translate the scriptures. 
and live among them and build a credible witness with complete strangers in a foreign land and raise their kids there and take their wife there and, and devote their lives to live there. And they're not cranking up a big 401k and pension plan and, you know, they don't have these big future plans for their finances or whatever. They, they don't have networking. I mean, they're, they're kind of like people think of them whenever they pop up in the bulletin to pray for when they come back on furlough every five years. But you know what they do? Every moment of every day, all the stuff that we aren't doing for those people there. So praise God for those people. Well, we need more of them. We can't all just support missionaries because we need somebody to preach. Romans ten fourteen says, how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are the people in Papua New Guinea ever going to hear the gospel unless there's someone who knows their language who they trust because they've lived among them to preach how will they know if there's no one preaching to them but we can't all be career missionaries either because where would the funds come from if we all quit our job right now and we all just so, okay we all want to be missionaries who's going to pay for that if every christian was a missionary romans 10:15 says how are they to preach unless they are sent and, and the book of Romans really is I had a professor whose theory it was and I, I see his point that the whole book of Romans is actually a support letter that Paul is writing to the Romans asking the key thing right at the end is and I'm going to need help getting to Spain so he's writing this letter saying get money ready so that when I come you can give me that money so that I can be helped on my way to Spain and everything else in the book of Romans is just kind of leading up to that. It's an interesting theory, but the, it, Paul needed support. He needed finances so that he could go on these missionary journeys. And missionaries today still need, someone needs to play the, buy the plane ticket for them. And somebody needs to give them a salary so that they can live where they are. And if their kids need glasses, somebody has to buy the glasses. And if the, the, the kid needs surgery on their ankle, someone needs to pay for the surgery. It's like These are people and families just like we are. They have the same problems we are. Their kids also have teeth like ours that need braces, just like everyone else. You know, maybe their wife wants to dye her hair. Like, these are just normal people. It's not like if you become a missionary, you, have, you don't need any money because, you know, the food's just going to be delivered by quail uh, and there's going to be manna in the morning. No, no. No, these are normal people with, with pets that need to be dewormed and stuff. Like, we, they need a salary. I hate it when Christians are like, I'm going to bless the missionary and send the used tea bags. Do people do that here? There was a thing in South Africa where it's like, you know, you, you can dip a tea bag, you can actually reuse it. You can dip it in another. But then there was this thing where they would take tea bags that have only been dipped once, so you've had your one cup, and then the second cup you send off to the missionary. Did they don't do that here? Good. Um, in South Africa, that was a thing. And we have friends who lived in Switzerland who said that they would get boxes of used tea bags as like a blessing for the poor missionaries. And he would take the used tea bag and toss it in the trash, just like you would. You know, I don't know what people think missionaries are doing. They're just normal people. I'm not making that up. I'm telling you, ask him. We were at the, the missionary's house. He, told us about it. It's crazy. Anyway, how are they to preach unless they are sent? So there's a benefit of faithful career missionaries and preachers, people who want to become full-time preachers, is that they can then use their gifts to spread the gospel in an undivided way. 
If you get a person that's particularly gifted at languages, for example, and they, they want to study some foreign African language, and they want to study Greek and Hebrew to the level that they can translate those things, then they're going to need time to do that. You can't, you can't translate the scriptures into another language in your spare time. That's just not how it works. You have to be immersed in the Greek and immersed in the Hebrew just to keep your knowledge of those languages going, and you have to be immersed in the foreign language well enough that you can be able to connect the two. That's not something you can do when you get back from being an accountant all day long. If you want to do that, you've got to quit your accounting job and do that full time. Well, where are you going to get your money from? That's where we come in. That's how we support these people. So that's the benefit of a career missionary or preacher is that they can use their gifts in an undivided way and then the kingdom of God benefits. But there's a problem with career missionaries. There's a problem with full-time preachers. They don't grow on trees. They are scarce. You just can't find a lot of people who want to give up a lucrative career. Usually the type of people that are gifted enough and driven enough, self-driven enough, to be able to learn multiple languages and integrate with people and travel the world and, and go into dangerous places, these are also the same type of people that if they used all those skills on themselves and their career, they would be really successful at whatever they wanted to do. A lot of missionaries, I know some missionaries are kind of like, the church is like, we don't know what to do with this guy, let's send him to Malawi. But most missionaries, almost all the missionaries I know, and certainly all the ones that we supported our church, they're not the bottom of the barrel. They're the cream of the crop. These are people with multiple graduate degrees that know multiple languages, that have had tons of training and experience, and they could use all of that to be really good at pretty much any job they wanted, and they chose to give all of that up to go and live somewhere where they never see their parents at Thanksgiving, and they don't have babysitters, and, and you know, maybe they're not even allowed to celebrate Christmas because of the country that they live in, and they have to learn this other language, and they have to teach their kids, and they, the kids get picked on at school because they all have funny accents, and or whatever they dress funny, or whatever it is. And these people do this for the gospel. But that's rare. To find somebody who desires to learn, desires to lead, has the ability to study, to counsel, who's gifted in teaching, who's morally qualified according to 1 Timothy 3, including, by the way, qualifications that aren't even listed in Scripture, that you have to have a wife that's willing to move with you. That's why in our very first date, I said to Kim, if you're not willing to move to Africa, we can't have a second date. Now looking back, I'm like, idiot, wait till the third date. Wait till you've charmed her a little. But anyway, the Lord was working on her heart too. But if you don't have a supportive wife, you're going to be useless. You just can't do it. And we've, we've seen missionaries ourselves that have had trouble on the field because the wife is like, I don't, this is his calling. I don't want to be here. And you have to have faithful children too because your children can derail your ministry. And then, once all this has happened, and you find a person who's qualified and gifted and desires this and has a wife who desires this, then they need money because they've got to study to get qualified. And then they've got to qualify, and then they've got to move, and then they've got to live. So put it another way, why are you not a church planter? Why are you not a missionary? 
and and let's let's say like in the comics there's little thought bubbles popping up think of think think hard of why you are not a full-time why you are not in full-time ministry quitting everything else that you do okay i'm going to try to read some of those ideas here's some reasons people have for not wanting to do this full-time i have health issues i can't do this i'm too old i have dietary restrictions i require a certain level of comfort or my wife does I hate asking for money. I hate living on the charity of others. I have no experience. I'm not godly enough. I have commitments at work. I'm a woman. I can't be a pastor. My wife is an unbeliever. My wife can't handle a mud hut. I can't handle a mud hut. My kids can't handle living abroad. I can't handle my kids. I hate to speak in front of people. People hate it when I speak to them. <laughs> you know, some of these are lame excuses and some of these are really legitimate reasons. But my point is this. That's why they're so few. Because there's lots and lots of reasons not to be in the ministry. And so when you find someone that is able and willing, we need to look after them. And we need to send them. And so Jesus gives this application in verse 2. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly, zealously to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And let me tell you that this is one of the most effective things that you can do for the kingdom of God worldwide. And that is pray that God stirs the heart of people to do the things that the rest of us can't do. Because he raises up people and gives them that gifting, but he also has to give them the desire. And one of the most exhilarating parts of being in seminary is that you're sitting alongside people from all walks of life who have made that decision. So I had in my class, where I used to sit in the back row at first, before somebody gave me this lecture about when the seats are free, you sit in front, and then I did. But I remember so clearly my first few days sitting in the back row, and there were four of us in the row. One of them, I've told you about him in a sermon illustration before, John, he was a Secret Service agent, and he got promoted to be on, as the president's bodyguard. So from the secondary team to the primary presidential team, the day he was promoted, he quit to come to seminary because he wanted to go into the ministry, and he knew that once he did that job, he would never be able to, he would never want to get out of it at that point. The other person sitting next to me, his name is Travis. He was a Navy SEAL. He made it to the point of the most coveted place in the U.S. arsenal and realized it was incompatible with what he wanted to do with his life, which was preach the gospel, and he quit and he's in seminary. And the other guy, there were four of us on this table, the other guy, his name was Gary. He was 63 years old. He was a farmer who had inherited his family farm and sold his family farm to come to seminary and brought his whole family with him. And all three of those people are in the ministry, and I'm still in contact with them now. I still follow what they're doing. And they have churches and flocks that have been highly blessed by their giftedness, all because they were willing to give up careers that, let's face it, Navy SEAL, Secret Service, bodyguard to the president, and farmer, when you're a farmer, maybe that one's not as exciting, but still, maybe, maybe you come from a place where you're like, that would be cool if I had my own farm. Would any of you get to that position and give it all up to, to do what? Learn Greek? 
Learn counseling so you can counsel for hours and people don't take your advice anyway? Move to a place where the only tea you drink is someone else's secondhand tea bag? Like, what are these people thinking? What are they doing? So why do they do that? And the answer is, because the Lord of the harvest called them. And there's just something about that calling. And you ask these people, do you regret giving up those careers? And they're like, absolutely not. This is what I was made to do. So we need more and more people like that. And there may be some among us even tonight, and you didn't even know. But the reason people end up in full-time ministry is usually because of the ladies' Bible study. Because in any church, the ladies' Bible study is usually the most faithful group to pray. And if they prayed for you, that's why the Lord's stirring you. So pray for more preachers. Thirdly, another responsibility for us, persevere in persecution. Verse 3, Jesus says to them, to all 70 of them, go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Well, that's not encouraging. Evangelists attract persecution like celebrities attract paparazzi. The persecution just finds you out. It just hounds you. As soon as you make a stand that I'm going to share the gospel, just even try this in your workplace. I'm going to make a point of sharing the gospel with the unbelievers that I work with every day for the next two weeks. See how that goes for you. I can almost guarantee you will have, by the end of the two weeks, some sort of office conflict because of you. Some sort of persecution. Some sort of you're not being invited to the things other people are doing. Some sort of usually you're asked to leave this meeting and now the other people are being asked. Some sort of complaint that's been registered at HR because you keep badgering people with the gospel. Whatever it is. Or, depending on where you are in the world, it could lead to imprisonment and even death. And Jesus says, yeah, that's where I'm sending you. Go. Jesus never hid this. These 70 disciples, 72 disciples, these have heard Jesus just preach about everyone who follows me needs to be willing to bear their cross. And now he says, now go do it. And by the way, I'm sending you like a lamb among wolves. I mean, just imagine a hungry wolf pack is roaming in your area and you're the shepherd of the flock and you see the wolves in the distance and you say to your flock, I need two of you to go to the wolves and invite them to come here. We're going to make lambs out of them. That's a recipe for disaster. Lambs are made out of wolf food. <laughs> right? So that's what Jesus is saying. I'm sending you evangelists into the world and I know that you're made out of wolf food. Go play with the wolves. Go get them. Because those are the ones that need saving. So why does God allow faithful Christians who obey his command to evangelize to be persecuted, to be mocked, to be hurt, maybe even to be killed? Well, firstly, it shows the dedication of his disciples to him that they're willing to do that. It shows the love of Christ to the unbelievers because the believers forgive them for what they're doing. Think of Stephen praying for his murderers. It shares in the sufferings of Christ. Paul says that over and over. I, I rejoice when I can share in the sufferings that Christ went through for me. And it brings blessing and reward from Jesus. 
These are the reasons Jesus allows these things to happen to us because it shows dedication, it shows love, it shares in the suffering of Christ and it brings blessing and reward. Matthew 5.11 says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Do you believe that? I mean, Jesus said that. Do you believe? Do you believe that you should be happy when people revile you? That means when they're at work and they say something bad about you because you're a Christian. Not if they say something bad about you because you're a jerk. But if you've been kind and you've been humble and you've been a a good Christian witness, and because of that, they don't like you, you hold a view that the Bible holds about whatever transgender stuff or political stuff or whatever it is, you hold a view because this is what Jesus says, and because of that, they call you narrow-minded and bigoted and holier than thou and don't let you sit at the lunch table with them, whatever it is. If that happens to you, if you get reported at work, if you get into trouble, you should be happy because your reward is great in heaven. Because that's happening to you, Jesus is like, i got to make that right. Not here, because you might end up burning at the stake, but i got to make that right in heaven. I remember this, when we went on a missions trip, we went to Northern Ireland, and we went into this neighborhood, and in Northern Ireland, there's a lot of tension between the Catholics and the Protestants, um, politically speaking, you know, the troubles in Northern Ireland. And so our little group of Protestants, of believers, we were sent into a Catholic neighborhood, these big apartment buildings, with a speaker, you know, and a, like an uh, amplification system. And we took turns preaching the gospel to people who were in their apartment buildings. And some of the neighborhoods, you know, people leaning out the window, some of them, everyone's closing the window. The one neighborhood we went to, they chased us out of the neighborhood by throwing stones at us. So after that day, we get to regroup, and the locals there were very embarrassed that we, this team that's come from far away now, has had this unsuccessful day of evangelism, basically. That we were chased away, nobody was listening to us, people were cussing us out, and then this other place was actually throwing stones at us. Um, And they they were like really dejected, and we're really sorry, or whatever. And I told them, what are you kidding me? This is the best day of evangelism ever. Now, think about it. The best thing for the people that you're preaching to is that they repent and are saved. But the best thing that can happen to you when you're evangelizing is that they reject you and throw a stone at you. Because that's the only thing that gets you reward in heaven. And if you believe that, you rejoice when you get the persecution. So you can't lose. You preach the gospel and the person repents and you rejoice because someone's going to be with you in heaven. That you have saved an eternal soul. That you've been rejoicing with the angels. And if they hate you and slap you and stone you, you rejoice as well because you're going to get rewarded for that. So the only thing you're not getting rewarded for is not evangelizing. If you don't even try. If you don't even try, you're not getting anything. If you try and it works, you get a soul and there's reward in that. And if you try and it doesn't work, and there's rejection, and there's persecution, you get reward in that. Either that or Jesus is lying, which we know he doesn't do. Rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven. And then the final responsibility we have is to purge all our pride. So just briefly, um, because next week we'll pick this up again, but verse 4 says, Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. You're kind of like, why? 
is this how we need to be missionaries? And there are some denominations that have this view. You want to be a missionary? Good. You get no money from us because of this verse. Just go out there, and if God wants you to be a missionary, people will support you. That's what Jesus said. And if you read, like, only this verse, that would make sense. That's how missions would work. You want to be a missionary? Go, and then the people that you're ministering to must either pay for you, or if they don't, then it's not God's will. But that's what theology is, remember. Theology is when you have the whole Bible in mind when you read one verse. So you need a whole theology. Because in Luke 22, same book, later on, in verse 35, Jesus said to them, when I sent you with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? Spoiler alert, they didn't lack anything. But this is in the future. He says, when I sent you with none of those things, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. And then he said, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So by the end of the gospel, Jesus is telling them, okay, remember that exercise you guys did well? I got new instructions. Take your money, take your bag. If you've got an extra cloak, trade it for a Glock 9 mil. You're going to need it. That's what he says. That's what a sword is in the Greek. It's a... Buy a sword. He says to his missionaries, go out and make sure you're packing heat. So, how do you fit that in with, go back, here to chapter 10, where he says, yeah, don't take any of that stuff. Well, he's teaching two different lessons at two different times. So you can't make this a standard for all missionaries of all time. This is what he's teaching them, and I think this is the principle that applies. He's, he's teaching them to purge all of their pride. This is what I mean. When you go to a town on this particular journey, you're going to show up, you're going to have no backup. You're going to have no Airbnb booked. You don't even have extra sandals. If, you've got, if there's a hole in your sandals, someone there in the town is going to have to donate you a pair. You're going to have to ask people to let you sleep on their couch. You're going to have to ask people there to buy you food that night. So let me ask you, what is the danger of knowing the Bible really, really well when you speak to people who don't know it at all? What do you think the biggest danger is for people who come out of seminary, fresh out of seminary, and they know way more than they think they know? I mean, they know less than they think they know, but they know more than they think other people know. Pride. Pride. So you've got these disciples that have seen Jesus do miracles. They're given the power to do miracles. They've been with Jesus all this time. They've been appointed. They've been chosen. They've been sent out. And they're going to a bunch of towns. Remember, remember a couple weeks ago we saw that John and James were like, this town doesn't want us. Can we nuke them? Can we call fire down from heaven? Jesus is like, no. Sons of thunder, what? But now you go to this town... And you're not going to eat unless the people there like you. So you're going to have to get very good very quickly at being friendly, kind, patient. You're at their mercy. If you tick them off, you don't get to sleep anywhere. <laughs> you don't get to eat. And so it's a way of forcing them to get over that hurdle that so many people who know the Bible well have is that, well, I know something you don't know. Let me teach you. Now you're coming to town with it. You have a lot of things I really, really need. So I'm going to build a relationship with you. And I'm going to be kind to you. I'm going to be very humble. 
because I'm completely at your mercy. And from that position, I have some really good news for you that Jesus asked me to share. And friends, that is an attitude that works. So many Christians are like, I just need to tell the truth and the Lord does the rest. Listen, you've been reading too much pseudo-Calvinism. If you've been reading actual Calvinism, you would know, uh uh-uh. You don't rely on God's sovereignty to do the work. You do what he tells you to do. And what he tells you to do is be humble. Be kind and be gentle. To be faithful. In the 1500s, when the Spanish colonial missionaries arrived in South America, they built these opulent cathedrals like they did in Europe because the people in Europe loved that kind of thing. And they thought, let's build these here and we'll show all of the natives in South America how powerful our God is and how beautiful his buildings are. But it had the opposite effect. It intimidated the people. They they were like, this God is, he's not like us. He doesn't understand us. We live in grass huts. And they had no success until the Jesuit missionaries came out there. The Jesuit missionaries who would walk barefoot among the people and they would build their grass houses among the people and share the gospel with them. That's when the church started to have a footprint in South America. Proverbs 18.23 says, The poor use entreaties, but the rich answer roughly. Isn't that a truism you've noticed in life? You meet these people, the rich, you know, they're driving the fancy car, they're wearing the fancy suit, they walk into a restaurant. How do they treat the waitress? Poor people come in, how do they treat the waitress? There's just something about being humble, being humbled, that helps you to be humble. And you use entreaties. In other words, you ask for things with a please and thank you. When you're rich, you're rough. You just, this is what I want. I'm going to send this back. This is not the way I like it. What do you think the disciples are going to be like knowing that they don't get to eat unless they're nice to people? They don't have a knapsack. They don't have money. They don't have sandals. They don't have anything. They're going to, they're going to approach these people with entreaties. That's what's going to work. So, play your part. You don't have to lead everybody to the Lord, but you do need to be planting seeds and watering. Play your part. Pray for more preachers. We do need people to devote their lives to this, so pray for that. Persevere in persecution. Just know that when you do share the gospel this week, there may be fallout, and that's okay. Rejoice and persevere through that. And finally, purge all your pride. Never, ever try to share the gospel from a position of power and pride, always from humility, just like our Christ did who came and lived among us and gave up the glories of heaven to be poor among us so that he could live for us and die for us. And that's why he wants us to do the same for others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, text and what a reminder it is that we need to be humble and active in sharing the gospel. What a blessing to know that um, those disciples were cared for and provided for as well, they were successful. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us opportunity this week, give us boldness and perseverance, and Lord, we pray for fruit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we have 10 minutes, and Will has his hand up. Shoot. Why not greet anybody? Oh, why not greet anybody? I had that in my notes, but I was running long. Thanks for asking, so now I can preach some more. Um, he says, do not greet people in the road on the way. I think what he, what's happening there is he's saying, I don't want you to meet people along your journey 
who find out what you're doing and then support you. The whole point is I want you to arrive in that town completely alone, not part of a bigger group. Because you know what it's like if, you, if you've ever like, backpacked through Europe or whatever, you, you end up with the other people that are doing the same thing and the, the, the six of you together make a plan or I know somebody and they'll, they'll have an extra sofa. He's like, no, I want you, the two of you to show up in the town completely alone, completely destitute and at the mercy of those people. Don't even, don't even make friends with people on the way. I think. Good, good question though. Anyone else? A few emailed questions and I said ask them tonight. So, yes, Lisa. Oh, you've been hearing about a drag queen singing Christian songs. Yes. So I've heard about this person um, who is becoming popular in, w with Christian music, kind of gospel music, but they are, it's a man who presents as a woman, dresses as a woman, acts as a woman, but is singing Christian songs and it's, be it's becoming more popular. So, well, you didn't ask a question, but I'll turn that into a question like, what's up with that? Um, <laughs> so, I th okay. A few principles that might help us think through things like that. Firstly, it's helpful to understand how many people in the world think they're Christians and aren't. Once you realize that that number is a lot larger than probably what you're estimating, that's going to help you process things that come packaged as Christian. Um, the Christian church worldwide, use church with a little c, worldwide, like the, especially in the States maybe, in the West, is made up of so many unbelievers who call themselves Christians, maybe think that they're Christians, that they uh, influence the success of false teachers for the positive. They, they boost their sales, they boost their numbers, they have lots of people following the false teachers of, of all stripes. That's why an interesting exercise whenever you go to a mall where there's a Christian bookstore is to go and look at the top 10 bestseller shelf I would submit to you that seven out of those 10 books are heresy. That's in the Christian bookstore. Or at least not heresy, like weak sauce. Like just, you could do better with, go read, go read the, the stuff that didn't make it in the top. So why is it that the best-selling books are often the worst books? You know, you got your Joyce Myers up there, you got your Joel Osteen up there, you got your Benny Hinn's up there. I'm like, ugh. You know, go read some Piper, go read some Kelvin, you know, go read some MacArthur, go read this stuff out there that you could really boost your knowledge. Why are you reading that drivel? Um, but so why are those the most popular? Because the people that like that aren't true believers. So now you can apply that to all sorts of things. You can apply that to a drag queen who's making Christian songs and making success out of it. Because the Christians who support that are probably either not real Christians and don't, don't even know it, or they may be Christians who just have very low discernment because they're not being taught enough Bible to know why that's wrong. Does that make sense? Good question that you didn't ask. Is there any follow-up to that before we move on to another one? Any follow-up to that? Maybe I was sounding a little harsh there. You don't want to talk that way to the people. 
what a loser reading Joel Osteen. I mean, anyway, don't say that. Be kind to the person. We just spoke about that, you know. But, um, but that, that explains the success of error out there is because most people who think they're Christians are boosting those numbers. But the true Christians, they know what they should be reading. They know the kind of songs they should be listening to. And just a little follow-up to your question. I've got another question you should have asked. Um, is because that person features in one of their songs, Derek Webb. And Derek Webb was my favorite Christian singer until he fairly recently came out as an apostate and denies Christ and says he was never a believer. So now I still have all of those songs of his that I bought. And they were my favorite songs. They were the songs I'd listened to over and over. I had them all memorized. And now when they come up on my phone, I can't listen to them anymore. Because now to me it's just hypocrisy. He has a person singing these wonderful lyrics about Christ and what he's done for his church, but I know that this person was a, a wolf in sheep's clothing all along. And the fact that that drag queen person and Derek Webb are, are together doing music and not scaring off the Christians, I can't even listen to Derek Webb, whose lyrics were actually good. So it doesn't matter about the, the lyrics being good anymore. Now there's something about the life of the person they deny Christ. They hate my Savior. Why would I want to support them in any way? And why would I want to be entertained by or edified by their version of the truth? Great questions, Lisa. Okay. Uh, Don and then Haley. Yes. So good question. Let me just repeat it for the camera. Um, so in the, in the Hebrews Hall of Faith, the so-called Hall of Faith is in Hebrews 11, there's a list of people that demonstrated great faith. By faith, Noah did this, and by faith, you know, Abraham did this, and by faith. And then Jephthah is mentioned, and Samson is in the list. And then you go and look at their lives, and Abraham's doing some shady things. Jephthah kills his daughter. Samson is the poster boy for everything you should not do as a person who loves the Lord. You know, he's sleeping with prostitutes and burning poor little innocent animals and killing people all the time with the jawbone of a donkey. And I mean, like, he's like just, he's flying off the handle a little bit, um, eating stuff out of, he's just breaking all the rules. So, so the question is, how come he's in the hall of faith then as an example of faith? So, um, and, and the terminology used there, I'm going to repeat because I think it's important. You said, Samson's acting like somebody who's not saved. Should we assume that everyone in the hall of faith is saved? So a couple of things. I think that the, the terminology saved is anachronistic in that you can't read that New Testament term back into the Old Testament in the same way. Paul uses the word saved to refer to himself as a person that's what we would call born again, a new creation, a new Christian. Uh, a Christian. But in the Old Testament, remember, the Holy Spirit didn't indwell people the way he indwells us. They weren't part of the church. The church started in Ante um, uh, Pentecost in the New Testament. So, so we have the church. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Before that, they had an actual temple, the building, right? So, so some of the terms, if you, if you import them, you, you, you kind of you, you change the meaning. Like, for example, all the judges are called saviors, but they didn't save their people from their sins, Right, so things like that. So I wouldn't use the terminology to say an Old Testament person, I wouldn't describe them as saved or unsaved. I would use more terminology like, were they being faithful to 
the law or were they being unfaithful to it? And using that terminology, Samson's definitely unfaithful to the law. And the, judge, the judges, they don't even know the law. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, right? So when you get to the hall of faith, it's talking about the great things these people did because they had this one thing that no one else had at the time, and that was faith in Yahweh, in the true God. And that's what's being extolled there. Look at what they were able to do just because they believed in the true God. That, that's kind of the point there. And, but on Samson, I don't want to you know, give too many spoilers because we're right in the middle of the Samson series in the Sunday evening where we just started it. But when Samson, in Samson's last moments, you see a different man because he's been humbled. So he breaks his Nazarite vow and he gets humbled tremendously humble. His eyes get poked out. He's treated like an animal. And he comes to God in humility for the first time. He never really cries out to God before that. And then he does. And then God gives him that strength back, almost like as a sign of approval of what's happened, of his humility. And then he does what God called him to do. Um, so I, I don't think you should look at the whole of Samson's life and say, this is an example one way or the other. It's like, Hebrews is talking about that one aspect, the faith that he had, and it may even just be the faith that he had in his last moments. Certainly for Jephthah, don't, don't kill your daughter. Remember that? Christianity 101. Don't kill your daughter. Um, he was wrong there, but he was still called a man of great faith because of the way he delivered Israel because of his belief in, in God. Here we go. Wow, that's a really good question. So let me just re repeat it. Um, so if you, if you have a relationship with somebody, there's someone in your life that you know who is reading books that you would deem deficient in their gospel clarity. Let's say that. So like a Joel Osteen or a Joyce Myers. Who, and, and some of them, will, especially Joyce Myers, will sometimes have some really good stuff in there, true stuff at least. It's just hard to find because it's packaged with all this other bad stuff. So when a person's reading a book they're taking all of that in, especially if they really like it. That, mean, that means they can't discern between the good and the bad. Otherwise, you would say, look, I don't recommend, like if I talk to somebody about Francis Chan, I say, look, I don't recommend much of what he says here, but there's some stuff in here that's really good, and I kind of, those four lines are underlined. You know, like that's how I would talk about it. I wouldn't say, this is the best thing ever. This changed my life. Read it, because that shows that I don't have the discernment to figure out the difference in there. So, so if I determine that that's the person I'm dealing with, um, your question was, do you share the gospel with them as if they're an unbeliever? Um, and I would say that, obviously you always know the situation best with the person. I, I think that people who are excited about Christian things, there's a huge opportunity there, even if it's Catholicism. You know, there's certain things that Catholics bring to the table that you don't have to fix. Like they, they believe in the Trinity already. That's huge. Uh, they believe in guilt. That's massive. You know, they believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he was the Savior who died on the cross and that he rose again literally. I'm like, you can skip all that stuff with Catholics and get straight to how, does that, how is that righteousness imputed to us? Is it through our works or is it through faith? 
Um, so it's the same with someone like that. Someone's reading some drivel from the, from the you know, cesspool that is a Christian bookstore down the road. Then what I would do is I would start with the commonalities there, the things that I know that they already agree with me on. Um, and, and in those situations, I'll ask a lot of questions. What did you like about it? Did you see anything that you didn't like about it? What does she teach about Scripture? What do you think about Scripture? Oh, you believe it's the very Word of God. Me too. Here's a Bible verse. Um, oh, I believe that too. Now, you're drifting. Don't worry about the material that they're reading. Just the more Bible a person understands, the more discernment they're going to have. So I would just focus on that. And that was the way I was evangelized. The, the pastor that, that led me to the Lord, I was Catholic, and he didn't talk about Catholicism. He, didn't, he never dismantled anything in Catholicism with me. He just preached the gospel to me over and over. And every question I ever had, even about Catholicism, he would just flip open the Bible and read a Bible verse. And he knew, I already knew that the Bible was the word of God. Catholics believe that. I just wasn't very familiar with it. So he just kept taking me back to it. And then I was like, I mean, it took me weeks before I realized I wasn't Catholic anymore. <laughs> I mean, I actually asked him, would they let me go to the Master Seminary and still be Catholic? No. But he said... Why don't you just keep coming to this Bible study and we'll see what the Lord does? That's a good answer. You know? So don't, don't be confrontative and pick on people. Like Build that relationship and just lead them to the truth where you can. Is that helpful? Yeah. Great. One more question. Yes, Jared. How did he what? Yeah, good, good question. I mean, I'll, maybe I should remember to cover this when I'm preaching through Judges. But like the, phrase, the question is, how, did, how and when did Samson actually judge? So remember, firstly, don't think of a judge in a gown with a gavel in a courtroom. This word, the, the shefatim, or the judges, the del- it's a word that means the deliverers. The, they were governors. They were military leaders. So um, like freedom fighters kind of thing. So they're... When you say that Gideon judged Israel for these years, it's not like he was sitting on his throne and doing court case stuff or even being a political leader. It was more like he was... I picture it more like what the godfather is. Like just the guy at the top that everybody recognizes is at the top, and so you don't mess with him. That, that's what that meant. Um, not necessarily that he had a particular authority or that he was putting in policies in place. It's just... it's. Our idea of what a politician does is not what the judges did. So the fact that he was delivering Israel from the Philistines and he was the one-man army doing that, Samson was, um, that's his time period of what he was doing for Israel. Great question. Una más, Nadia. Sí. En español, por favor. great question. Is that Psalm 5211? Um, in the prayer in Psalm 5211 where David says, do not take your spirit from me. Um, so the question is about what I said earlier about spirit indwelling people in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, the spirit did not indwell permanently people the way he does today in the, in the church, but he did come upon people and was with them in order to accomplish the task God wanted them to accomplish at the time. So we're going to read the same thing about Samson. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and then he did what the Lord wanted him to do. Um, you even see it with Saul. 
Saul had the spirit, but then the spirit left Saul. So there's a sense that if he's not into it, the spirit can't leave you and I. If you're a Christian, you have the spirit in you, that's, you're, you are now indwelt permanently and, and as part of the, that's why you can't lose your salvation because you're part of the church. But they weren't like that. They would have the spirit empower them, um, come upon them, stir them. It's that kind of language. There's never any language of it living in them. So when, when David says, take not your spirit from me, remember that when he became king, he was anointed to be king and the spirit came to give him wisdom to lead and the authority and all those things. He was God's man. And what he's saying is because of my sin, Psalm 51 is, you know, his confession of the sin of Bathsheba. Those Psalms are kind of grouped together for a reason. Because of his sin, he is saying, you know, what I've done is bad. Please don't undo my role that you've called me to do. You know, don't take your spirit from me. And like, like you did with Saul. Saul was anointed the king of Israel, but then Saul was, you know, such a bad guy that when the spirit left him, he was tormented by an evil spirit and ends up, you know, a raving lunatic who's like shaking on the ground naked and just trying to kill God's man. And it's just like a wacko. And David says, I don't want to be like that. So don't, 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 don't let happen to me what happened to Saul by lifting your hand of approval in your spirit and, and his empowerment from you. So it's not, it's not the same as we would never need to pray something like that. Take not your spirit from me. We wouldn't pray that because he, he's in us already. 